Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the mid-1990s, when Pamela Anderson was at the height of her fame, she sat down for an interview with talk show host Regis Philbin. He was the co-host of Live with Regis and Kathy Lee, and Pam was there to promote Baywatch, which was rated number one in the world at that time. Regis was asking her about the sudden and wild popularity of that show, where she played C.J. Parker, a veteran lifeguard who patrols the beaches of Southern California in a cherry red one-piece swimsuit. And that suit, well... That suit was what Regis, and seemingly all of America, really wanted to talk about. And I love your red bathing suit. Oh, I thank you. I don't think that's the most flattering. But there's something about those one-piece suits. Yeah, oh, I like one-piece suits. Better than bikinis. Excuse me. (laughs) What you can't see, and what gets that laugh at the end, is the face Regis makes after he says that. He's biting his thumb like a horny teenage boy who just can't contain himself thinking about that swimsuit. And you know what? He wasn't entirely alone. There was something about that swimsuit. I'm Jessica Bennett. And I'm Susie Banacarum. This is In Retrospect, where each week we revisit a cultural moment from the past that shaped us. And that we just can't stop thinking about. This week, we're talking about a swimsuit a very specific swimsuit worn by Pamela Anderson on Baywatch, that classic and campy lifeguard drama. But we're also talking about what that swimsuit represented, which was a particular view of sexuality that defined 1990s America, which happens to be the era we grew up in. So Jess, we're talking about that famous red swimsuit, but like everything else on this show, it's not just a swimsuit. Right. That suit became one of these key artifacts of 90s culture. Like, we all remember it. It hung on posters in bedrooms of teenagers all across America and the world. Yeah. It eventually was, like, plastered onto beer koozies and beach towels. 
I was like going down the rabbit hole on eBay. There's calling cards. Remember calling cards when you would no, have to like go to cards? a payphone oh, and dial. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that swimsuit with Pam in it was on calling cards. That's weird. <laughs> it was on pinup calendars, like basically anywhere you could put an image and sell it. There was Pam in that suit. And side note, she never made a dime from any of those. Because she didn't have any rights to her own image. The image was all owned by Baywatch. That's wild, too. So what made you think about that suit now? Yeah, so you'll remember that she released a memoir recently. And she was also the subject of a Netflix documentary that was actually produced by her son, all about her life. And so late last year, I traveled to Canada and basically got snowed in at Pamela Anderson's house. That sounds amazing. (laughs) In Ladysmith, Canada, where she grew up, which is where she now lives, in order to write a profile of her. And at one point, to tie this back to the suit, I found myself in Pamela Anderson's attic, as you do. And, (laughs) you know, it's fascinating. It's full of old magazines, interviews she's done, all of her Playboy covers. She's very into scrapbooking, so it's like, scrapbooks she made for her kids who are now grown, old report cards. There was like a wedding scrapbook album she had made for Tommy Lee, her ex-husband at one point. Who's like married to someone else now, right? But who's the father of her children, they co-parent. And I also uncovered an old Baywatch Barbie. Do you remember that there was a Baywatch Barbie? I mean, I don't know that I remember it, but I can immediately conjure up the image of it. So I must have been aware of it in some way. So it's not specifically branded as the Pamela Anderson Baywatch Barbie, but of course she looks like Barbie and Barbie looks like her. she is the quintessential Barbie. Exactly. So, you know, the Barbie's wearing the red suit. The Barbie has the, like, lifeguard buoy. There's a little dolphin, which is very Pam also. She's an animal rights activist. Yeah. And to show the impact of this suit, but also the show, this is one of the top-selling Barbies of all time. Really? It's another little data point that tells you about the impact of that swimsuit and that suit on that show. Interesting. So we're talking about the swimsuit, but for those who need a little refresher, Baywatch. What was Baywatch? Susie, do you have a recollection of Baywatch? I mean, I knew that Baywatch was a lifeguard show. It felt like it was on TV all the time in the 90s. It was. It ran from 1989 to 1999. And the show was about a group of lifeguards who patrolled the beaches of L.A. County. The action usually revolved around, like, dramatic water rescues. So lifeguards diving into waves or even jumping from helicopters into the open ocean. But, you know, there were also, as you can imagine, really dramatic things such as shark attacks, earthquakes, like hot affairs, and even murder. So, you know, like your usual beach day drama. Okay, and I remember it as really being a show that starred Pam Anderson, although I also remember that David Hasselhoff was like a big character on the show, right? <laughs> a big character. character on the show. He was like the captain of the team or something. something Is like it a lifeguard that. team? I don't know. <laughs> Um, that is all true. But while Pam, you know, universal sex icon of the 90s, and some could argue still today, was indeed a big part of it, she didn't actually join until the third season. Really? Yep. I had no idea. I mean, I just think of that show as so tied to her. I can't imagine that show without her. And the thing about Pam Anderson in that show is that it was really her who took this swimsuit and cemented it into the American psyche in this way that none of us will ever forget. But, of course, that is how we feel now. And I was really curious how Pam felt about it back then. So I went back to Pam and I asked her what it was like to act in that suit. 
I guess that's a difficult question to ask. I was just doing what I was told, wearing the costume, and I would have been on the beach anyway. So it was fun to act in a swimsuit. I was getting a tan and doing a job at the same time. I know a lot of the girls kind of complained about wearing a swimsuit all the time, but I actually really enjoyed it. It was either the red swimsuit or the black swimsuit where we did all of our workouts in, all of our slow motion montages. People always ask me, how did you stay in such good shape on that show? And I thought, well, just wear a bathing suit every single day and you just don't eat that bagel. I love hearing her voice, but unfortunately, I do eat the bagel. Is that bad? <laughs> um, but yeah, it really is amazing that you can immediately conjure up what that swimsuit looks like. I was trying to remember if there was one image of that suit that like really crystallizes this. And it's almost like there's dozens of moments. So if you look back at the show itself, you see Pam in the red suit grabbing her buoy and running towards the water. We see Pam in the suit bent over, like sexily lotioning up with sunscreen. <laughs> As um, one does. We see Pam and her swimsuit on the jet ski. We see Pam going to save a drowning man, but like turns out the guy isn't really drowning. He just wants Pam and him in the red swimsuit to save him. I mean, him. that must have been a lot of the case. Prompting a false rescue is a crime. You can't bust me for that. I love you. And so much slow motion running, like slow motion from every angle, from back, below, side, top, any angle you could possibly do slow motion. But the show's opening credits are really what I remember. The Baywatch theme song, I'm Always Here, sung by the 80s hair metal band Cobra. I loved a hair metal band in the 80s. <laughs> plays in the background. And so as the opening credits play on, you see these scenes of, you know, sunny California beach sand, babes in bikinis, like sun umbrellas, kids laughing. And then you meet C.J. Parker. She's got her hands on her hips. The camera slowly pans from her very perfect and very tan legs up to the top of her cherry red swimsuit and then up to her face. And we see that that suit is extremely low cut on the top, very high cut on the hips, and like basically side boob is in full effect. So obviously a very functional lifeguard Totally suit. functional suit. And so wait, you're telling me that there's more to the opening than just Pam? Because Isn't I remember funny? the entire opening is just being Pam running down the beach. I love that that's the way you remember it because that's what I think most people's takeaway was. But actually, it introduces all the characters. There's all sorts of <laughs> beach scenes. Like, it's giving us a glimpse into Southern California beach life. But what do we remember? We remember Pam. Pam. What do we actually know about the swimsuit? I mean, it really does not seem like a functional lifeguard Okay, suit. so funny you should raise that because the original suit, so I mentioned that Pamela only joined in season three. So the original suit was inspired by real California lifeguards. It had like an official LA County lifeguard patch, like the real kind. And the creators of the show, one of them had actually started out as a lifeguard in California. <laughs> so they were quoted at the time talking about how they wanted these suits to be quote, practical and actually work in the surf. They wanted to have good support in the bust. They wanted to have minimal creep in the back. And as one of them said, it was all about athletics and functionality. Wait, so the original swimsuits were standard issue, like lifeguard swimsuits? Yes. They were truly based on real 
lifeguarding. They wanted to replicate what actual lifeguards wore. At one point, one of the co-creators of the show had this whole description about how they wanted the suits to work in the water, in big surf. You know, they were talking about how if you're a real (laughs) lifeguard, you have multiple victims that can be grabbing onto your hair, your suit, your arms, your legs, and they could easily rip off a swimsuit if they're desperate enough. They're, you know, they're drowning. So they couldn't have two-piece swimsuits. It was too risky. These needed to be legit swimsuits. I think this is taking things a little literally for a TV show, no? I mean... Okay, here's the thing. This was a show that began as something that was meant to be a serious lifeguard show. This was at a time, (laughs) early 90s, like, this was the era of, like, L.A. Law, Law & Order, NYPD Blue, ER, like, all of these shows about, like, doctors, cops, whatever, oh, where we were like going inside behind the scenes and right. seeing the how they really life worked. Of exactly. Got it. So the original conceit for Baywatch was to be a, quote, serious lifeguard show. And in fact, the title, Baywatch, that's actually a real name of the rescue boats that patrol Southern California oh, beaches. Really? Did you know? No, I, I did I not know no that. Idea. And I grew up in California. So what happened was Baywatch was canceled. The serious Baywatch was canceled after its first season on NBC. And then it was basically saved by a syndication deal. In the process, the production budget was slashed by a third, and a lot of the original cast members either quit or were fired. They basically rethought the show. It got a little bit sexier. They took themselves a little bit less seriously. That makes sense. They didn't have as much money. This is actually how the slow motion run gets put into the show because they were trying to save money and take up more air time. So they were like, let's (laughs) just slow it down. So that run actually came from one of the creators of the show. His name is Greg Bonin. He was the one who was a lifeguard, so he sort of thought he knew everything about lifeguarding. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he might have known everything about I mean, lifeguarding. He sort also, of seems beside the point, but He okay. also got his start as a TV producer for the Olympics. Oh, interesting. So he would film the athletes in slow motion to show their athleticism. Oh, interesting. And so he brought that idea over to Baywatch, you know, to show their athleticism. Eh like questionable. <laughs> yeah. And later on, David Hasselhoff, he goes on to become an executive producer of the show and he's basically made it seem like the sexiness was kind of an accident. So really? he told Men's Health in 2012, we didn't have enough financing to finish the show. So we found a way to fill the hour by shooting people running in slow motion. What? We said, well, girls in bathing suits look good running in slow motion. So let's just shoot that. And they just like put in huge like chunks of that? Like, just I mean, it would actually, someone scene? should do a study of this to actually figure out how much of that show percentage-wise is just running in slow motion. It's probably more than dialogue. That is a fascinating way to fill time. So anyway, then in 1982, in its third season, this is when Pamela Anderson is cast. She actually replaces another actor who quit because she didn't like the new direction of the show. The slow-mo or the sexiness? I mean, I think they go (laughs) hand in hand. But Pam takes on the role of C.J. Parker, who was supposed to be the most experienced lifeguard on the show. Mm, Fancy. She was a character who was actually partially based on Pam, the real-life Pam. She was like a dreamer. She was really into like new-agey stuff and crystals and mindfulness. (laughs) I love the idea that they were like, we should meet with Pam and see what she cares about. Like write it into a character. She was into animal rights. Yeah, because it's like, you know, it's important for this to feel really authentic. Method acting. Exactly. And she was constantly falling in love. So they also redid the bathing suits. Uh Aha. But the bathing suits got redone 
for Pam? It, they didn't just redo the suits for Pam. They redid them for everyone. But this was kind of part of this sexier rebrand. So what happens? Well, the new suits have a much lower scoop in the front. Mm, yes. They have high-cut legs on the sides to kind of show or fake the appearance of height. They often have this really low back, though some of them had cross backs. And it actually is funny. There's quotes from different actors over the years talking about that swimsuit. Kelly Packard, who didn't join until much later, but she played lifeguard April in seasons eight and nine. She once said that her swimsuit was so far up her butt that she started crying. Because it was painful? Yep. (laughs) (laughs) At a certain point, you know, as this rebrand is happening, actually putting on the swimsuit is part of the audition. But I don't think anyone knows this in advance. So like years later, Carmen Electra has this story. She tells the New York Times about how she showed up without having shaved her legs. And she was like, oh God, I hope they don't notice. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that is something you should warn someone about. But it really does feel like it has the potential to lead to some awkward situations. It's so objectifying. Right, you're being asked to put on the swimsuit. Well, it's interesting because a few years ago, Esquire brought together all of the original actors and did this oral history of the show. And Tracy Bingham, who played the first black Baywatch babe, she came on in 96. So that gives you an idea of how white the show was. It started in 89. So white. I remember that show as being so white. She describes being in her trailer and one of the producers coming in and asking her to put on her suit and then basically like touching underneath her breasts to make sure she wasn't padding them. That's not okay. Does Pam ever talk about that, about sort of those experiences? Well, so it's interesting because Pam got her start in Playboy. So it sort of sets up this tone. She was discovered in her small town where she grew up in Canada. She was in her early 20s. She was at a football game and the Jumbotron camera pans over to her and she's wearing this crop top with Labatt's, you know, that beer brand on it. And so, of course, Labatt's is like, who is this woman? Amazing. Hire her who to gets be our discovered this model. way? Yeah. And so she goes on to become Playboy's most photographed cover model of all time. Oh, wow. But that takes a few years. So at this time, she was working as the tool time girl in Home Improvement. <laughs> I don't think so, Al. <laughs> The whole role of the tool time girl was like not to speak, but just to like look cute in a pair of Daisy Dukes and have a tool belt on and like hand over the tools. And so that was the period she was in when she auditioned for Baywatch. It's interesting because I do really think of Playboy and Pam as very intrinsically connected. Like to me, when I think of the classic Playboy cover model, I do think of Pam. And that's so interesting, too, because actually Baywatch and Playboy are intrinsically connected in some way. Playboy became this kind of natural casting choice for Baywatch at the time. Also, side note, it was often jokingly referred to as Babe Watch. Yeah, that feels right. (laughs) So in season one, the actress who played Shawnee McLean, this is a character who was on the first two seasons, she had previously posed for Playboy. Oh, yeah. Then came Pam as C.J. Parker. Later on, Carmen Electra, who played Lonnie McKenzie. Kelly Monaco, who made several appearances. Playboy even did a Babes of Baywatch issue in the late 90s. So they were going to Playboy in some ways to recruit actors for Baywatch. And in that same oral history I mentioned for Esquire, it's funny because one of the producers basically says in front of all the other actors that they basically hired a bunch of hot women who would look good in a swimsuit but couldn't act. I mean, that makes sense because looking good in a magazine has nothing to do with being able to deliver dialogue, but they sure could run. Hey. 
Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Willa Paskin, the host of Decoder Ring, Slate's podcast about cracking cultural mysteries. On Decoder Ring, we dive down rabbit holes and obsessively explore questions hiding in plain sight. Like, why has slow dancing gone out of style? And when did we all become obsessed with hydration? And where did the word mullet, you know, to describe a hairstyle, come from? That's Decoder Ring, named one of the best podcasts of 2023 by The New York Times. Listen to new episodes every two weeks and make sure to follow us so you never miss one. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, A military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I didn't realize how big Baywatch was until I was researching this. Oh, right. Yes. You it was that. one of the first TV shows to be syndicated, which meant that basically they could run it on multiple channels, which probably explains why it seemed like yeah. it was I on mean, it all makes the sense. time. It was on all the time. Yeah. At its height, it had billions of viewers, literally billions. It was the most watched TV show in the world. And actually, at a certain point, it was literally shown in every country every in the world. Country? Yep. How is that even possible? I fact checked this. Yeah, okay. I mean, I believe you. It's just. Some of the foreign syndications eventually started including what 
Pam calls the Pamela Clause, which <laughs> meant me that, that they wouldn't buy the episodes unless she appeared in them. She, of oh course, didn't get paid any of extra course, for extra, that. But that's impressive. And then one of the most interesting things I found was that there's actually an economic theory name for Baywatch having something to do with the export of culture into foreign countries called the Baywatch Effect. Oh, so that's interesting because it's not really even just an economic export, right? It's like the way we think about America, the way other people in other countries think about us must be so shaped by this sort of quintessential California show. I mean, I grew up in, you know, large part in California. So I always sort of had this image of the quintessential California girl, but that becomes just the American American girl girl in most places. Absolutely. Which actually reminds me of Borat. All I could think about was this lovely woman in her red water panties. Who was this CJ? Oh, right, because in that movie, he's going looking for Pam Anderson. Yes. He's here to, like, marry Pam, and then he tries yes. to kidnap her. Because it's, like, it's such all a huge theme. Of the all that he knows of America. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. And it's interesting because I do really think for most of the world, that sort of blonde Barbie girl is what America represents to them in some ways. This sort of like carefree, sunny lifestyle. And of course, I grew up in Seattle, which is the opposite of the sunny, happy lifestyle, (laughs) the suicide capital of the world. Oh, interesting. Did not know that. Strangely, I also grew up watching Pamela Anderson on Baywatch. Awkwardly, with my, God, I distinctly remember this, with my two younger brothers who are twins, they're three years younger, and my dad in like our dingy TV room. Together as like a family? As a family. And like, how did that happen? I do remember my mom always kind of like making remarks about how this was trash TV. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's Um, trashy. And I think there was just not a lot else on. We didn't have cable. There weren't that many options. And this was like, on NBC, so it was supposedly a family-friendly show. Yeah. So, okay, Pam joined that show in 1992. I was in middle school. I was, like, insecure, hated my body. I had just taken part in a protest called Skirt Fest at my middle school. What did that protest? (laughs) My seventh-grade boyfriend had been kicked out of class for wearing my skirt. Oh. This was the era. Do you remember those, like, long, flowy skirts that everyone was wearing? Kind of, like, hippie, grungy kids. It was the Um, original boho chic. Yes, exactly, but, like, not chic at all. Anyhow, he got in trouble for wearing a skirt to class and got kicked out of class. And so we staged a walkout and we picketed in front of Washington Middle School. I love that. And we got the high schoolers to come and they supported us and we made the local newspaper. But how does this relate to Pam? I mean, A, we were never wearing swimsuits because it's dark and dreary in Seattle all the time. So, like, the idea of us in a red swimsuit would never happen. Also, like, bright colors, we don't do that in Seattle. It's gray only. And it rained every day. And yet, we all knew who she was. We all knew of the sex goddess in the red swimsuit. We all, I think, subconsciously still compared our bodies to that. Yeah, I think it would have been impossible to be a preteen or teen girl in this era and not compare yourself to what was so obviously the ideal, right? Like you and I are both brunettes, for example, and I was obviously conscious of that growing up in California. I think it's a very natural thing as a woman to see kind of what the idealized female form is in culture. And then, especially as you're sort of trying to understand your relationship with your body, ask yourself in what ways you differ from that or what ways you aspire to that. And I think most girls would have felt that way. 
I mean, you know, even in my like grungy skirt in rainy, dark, depressing Seattle, (laughs) that red swimsuit became synonymous with sex and the ideal. And in many ways, it was a straight male fantasy of the ideal. Yeah, the distillation of that fantasy. You know, it's like, what is the impact of a swimsuit? It's such a tiny thing. You can really dig into this and say, okay, what did that teach us about bodies. To wear a swimsuit like this, one had to have absolutely bionic, unmovable breasts. Yeah, I mean, one thing I have thought of is that when you're watching that slow-mo run, if you were— A normal— Yeah, like with natural breasts, your breasts would just be like— Right. —bouncing like crazy. And Pam Anderson has talked at length about like regretting her breast implants, and she got them at this time, and then she got them removed, and she got them again. So it's not like she would deny this either. But yes, that is not a swimsuit that a person with natural breasts can wear. Or run in, at least. Or run in. (laughs) Yeah. The— High cut, like, you have to be completely waxed to wear a swimsuit that high cut. And that's interesting because I feel like now, or, well, now there's a backlash, but there was this period where Brazilian bikini waxes became very ubiquitous. But when we were, you know, in the 90s, that was not super common. It's so funny because that was, like, we were all getting those in high school. You were? Yes. Wow. Much more advanced than I I was. But actually, we can't talk about all this in a vacuum. Like, you have to understand what was happening culturally at the time. So this is like mid-90s. It's kind of like the height of raunch feminism. You know, we've come so far toward equality that now we can like objectify ourselves and it's totally fine. This is like the girls gone wild. Yes, girls era. gone wild. It's like spring break. Is this also like when the restaurant Hooters Oh, yeah. This a is, thing? Well, certainly I think one of the like most popular sort of moments for restaurants, as they call them, the Hooters of the world were very much part of the mainstream cultural conversation. And also shows like The Man Show, which has male comics, and then a side show of women in bikinis jumping on trampolines. So as I was trying to think through what was happening in the culture at the time, I called up Susan Douglas. She's a professor of media studies at the University of Michigan and the author of a book called Enlightened Sexism. And that book is fascinating because it basically makes the argument that this kind of raunchy objectification is coming on the heels of, or at the same time really, as serious gains in women's rights. Oh, that's interesting because it feels like it's kind of a backlash to the 80s image of like the Wall Street working girl with her business suit and her nude yeah, pantyhose and her like white sneakers with her pumps in her bag. Exactly. And and so in a way, this objectification is almost like a reaction to feminism and to too many or allegedly too many gains. Yes, because we're always getting too ahead of ourselves. And so this is what she calls what she charms enlightened sexism, which is essentially this idea of like, hey, full equality has been achieved. Like we have that Wall Street woman who is breaking the glass ceiling. So sexual objectification of women like Pamela Anderson can't really hurt us anymore, right? No, it's progress. We can be feminist and sexy. Anyway, here's Susan, who will describe it much better than I can. I think it's easy to forget what a swirl the 90s was of feminist revolt, girl power, third wave on the one hand, and the increasing objectification of women and also the discovery of teenage girls as a really, really important niche market. So you do have this 
kind of revival of feminism at the same time that you have a backlash against it. And this is what made Susan Faludi's 1991 book, Backlash, a smash bestseller. And you were also getting the increased sexualization of women and girls, you know, which had started back when in the 80s with Brooke Shields and those Calvin Klein ads. And so you start getting this kind of ironic sexism where, of course, full equality has been achieved. So it's really not possible to hurt women anymore with sexist depictions in the media because everything is allegedly equal when, of course, it wasn't. It's so interesting because I feel like this is a thing we're kind of seeing again now. And I mean, obviously, history repeats itself. But every time it feels like there's some sort of conversation that makes men uncomfortable, like Me Too, then there's like this backlash that's like, no, it's too far. It's gone too far. Another thing I wanted to mention, and I don't want to give it too much credit, but that swimsuit literally spawned a generation of plastic surgery. Pam Anderson has talked, she famously got implants. She's talked many times and she's very open about it, about regretting it. She called it a vicious cycle that she could never break out of. Side note, Ripley's, believe it or not, at one point offered to put her removed implants on display in its museum? She said no. Yeah, good for her. But cosmetic surgeons over the years have talked about how she truly ushered in this era of plastic surgery that made them rich. Like her body— economic impact. Exactly. Her body became the reference point. And specifically, people would come into plastic surgery offices with photos of her in that red swimsuit and say, like, I want that body. That body specifically. So, like, liposuction—like, whatever it would take to make your body look like that. sculpted, liposuction to perfection. Do you have any pictures of about the size that you might want to be? I have a picture of Pamela Anderson with me. So that's a clip from this MTV show. You might remember it. It's from the early 2000s called I Want a Famous Face. And it shows you exactly what I'm talking about. This young woman is using Pamela Anderson as the literal reference point for the plastic surgery that she wants. I mean, it kind of makes sense. Pam is beautiful if you're trying to get plastic surgery. It's like a smart reference point, I guess. And so, of course, you know, that show is extreme, but I actually found some pretty stunning data about plastic surgery from that time. So Pam joined Baywatch in 1992. And what the data shows is that in the next 10 years, so from 1992 to 2002, breast augmentations in America went up by 500%. Oh my God. I mean, people won't be able to see my face, but I did like a comically shocked face just now. It's a huge number. And in one article I was reading about those stats, there's this plastic surgeon quoted who basically says like, we were blessed with Baywatch. It was like an hour-long plastic surgery commercial. They should have given her a kickback. And the funny thing is, you know, based on my conversations with her and things she's said over the years, as all of that is happening, she herself does not feel good about her own body. That is really the true female experience, yep. right? It's like no matter how much other people admire your body, you enough. can still find the flaws. Right. And interestingly, in Pam's case, that's even more complicated because so many people have literally seen her naked. Right. I mean, we haven't even really gone into the sex tape yet. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. 
At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Willa Paskin, the host of Decoder Ring, Slate's podcast about cracking cultural mysteries. On Decoder Ring, we dive down rabbit holes and obsessively explore questions hiding in plain sight. Like, why has slow dancing gone out of style? And when did we all become obsessed with hydration? And where did the word mullet, you know, to describe a hairstyle, come from? That's Decoder Ring, named one of the best podcasts of 2023 by The New York Times. Listen to new episodes every two weeks and make sure to follow us so you never miss one. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, A military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so we do need to talk about the sex tape. Pam is on Baywatch. She starts dating the rock star Tommy Lee. And during their honeymoon, they start filming. It's what has been called in the popular culture a sex tape. But actually, it's like a very long VHS with like tender moments of them getting together and then them on their honeymoon. And yes, there are a few minutes in this very long tape of them having sex. That sex tape gets stolen from their home, from a safe in their home, and distributed. And basically, Pam now talks about this as the great humiliation of her life. Right, totally without their consent, right? I mean, I think the popular 
culture now sort of assumes most sex tapes are leaked Leaked. by the people in the sex tape. But in Pam's case, it genuinely was just this personal memento that they had made of their romance. And then somehow somebody got their hands on it. And this, of course, there have been podcasts done just on this tape. But yes, this is like the start of online pornography. She sues them. They lose in court. But this is all happening during Baywatch. And so... It connects because for a time after the tape went public, foreign distributors and the networks began demanding that Pam be taken off the air. Like, they thought this was going to be too controversial for the show. But interestingly, and maybe not that surprisingly, it actually helps Baywatch. Well, now it's not surprising because we know that, like, Kim Kardashian's entire career was kicked off by a sex tape. But back (laughs) then, I can see how executives might have thought that there may be some sort of backlash against it. And, you know, why are we talking about this? So the thing is, there's this connection between that swimsuit and what would happen to her in her later life and the way that she was kind of set up as this object in many ways. She starts in Playboy where she poses nude. She goes on to be this bombshell on Baywatch that is spread across beach towels and calendars and everything else. And then there's this sex tape, which is distributed without her consent. And it's not just her nude. It's pornography. Yeah, it's pornography. And there's this real sense that her body belongs to the public. Right. One of the oddest things to me, you know, in spending time with her and researching her and reading every interview she's done, watching the documentary, is this sense in truly an anecdote after anecdote after anecdote that she almost becomes like a public commodity in some way. Like people feel entitled to her in almost a physical physical sense. There are a few clips where you can really hear it. She goes on Howard Stern ostensibly to talk about her career. And he ends up spending the whole time talking about how cute her private parts are. No, you're not going to be slaughtered anything. Let me just look at you. Oh, perfect. (laughs) Let me soak you in for a second. Come on, don't sit down so quick. Matt Lauer, who goes on to be fired for sexual misconduct, does an interview with her where the first question is asking her about her breasts. May we talk briefly about your breasts? (laughs) Oh, my God. I mean, that's so crazy because Matt Lauer was a serious journalist. Like, that would have been in a news interview. Yeah, that's a really good point. There's another example. At one point, she takes part in a roast on Comedy Central. And so, you know, she's agreed to do this. So in some way, she's in on the joke. But again, it's her ex-husband, Tommy Lee, who's roasting her. And this is the way the monologue begins. This is actually a special time for Pam to be here because she just turned 38 and her tits just turned 14. And it's almost like this becomes weirdly physical in a sense. Like people or fans feel like they are entitled to her physical space. Right. They claw at her at events. They're right. Like they're trying to get to her a lot of the time. And so she, in her book, she has a couple of different stories. One about Tim Allen, who was a star of Home Improvement, where she was the tool time girl. Yeah. And on her first day on the set, she walks out and he's in a robe and they're outside of the dressing rooms and he flashes her. That's and he terrible. says... Now you've seen me naked, too. He's since denied that, of course, but it's in her book. There's another scenario that she talks about also in her memoir where she's traveling to Uruguay for some sort of fan event, and she gets out, and the car is surrounded by teen boys, hundreds and hundreds of teenage boys, and they're, like, shouting for her, and then suddenly they're, like, clawing at her, and her bodyguard has to literally throw her over his shoulder and, like, get out of there. And by the time she gets back to the truck or the SUV or whatever, her clothes have been physically torn off of her. That sounds terrifying. There's this other story she told me, which she also writes about in her book, but 
Basically, she comes home one day to Malibu when she's living there, and a deranged fan has broken into her home, oh is God. in the basement, and has fallen asleep in the swimsuit. Oh, my God. And they basically have no idea how long she's been there. God, there's so much, like, invasion of her, like, autonomy. Personal space. Yeah. For what it's worth, the suit is now in a safe in her son's home. It should really be in the Smithsonian. It really should, actually. Yeah, I mean, seriously. Even as late as 2003. You remember that book, the Chuck Klosterman book, Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs? Of course. He writes about Pamela Anderson in there, and and there's this quote, Am I physically attracted to Pamela Anderson? Of course. But the more I see her, the more I realize I'm not looking at a person I'd like to sleep with. I'm looking at America. That really is the thing, right? She's so intrinsically tied up with the idea of America for so many people. She becomes almost like a symbol rather than a person. Right. She's like a souvenir that everybody wants to own a piece of. And I mean, look, like Pamela Anderson is certainly not the first woman in our culture to become a sexual commodity or even to own her part in that. I mean, I was thinking back to you know, there's like Britney Spears, Marilyn Monroe to a large degree, even I think like Lil' Kim in the 90s to some degree. But I'm trying to think about what the difference is for Pam. Maybe the difference is those people had careers first to fall back on before right. it became about their bodies, before it became about the physicality or sex. And with her, that's what she was from the beginning. She didn't have anything to fall back on. She was established as a sex object. Like a one-dimensional pinup. So people didn't really see her as human in many ways. Like, they don't see her as a living, breathing human. They just really see almost this image of her in their minds that they disassociate with her as a person. And now she's sort of taking control of her narrative. She's right. reading this book. She's doing all this. She's inserting some yeah. of the complexity back in. I don't know how much time you're spending on TikTok these days. Well, but I do spend a lot of time on TikTok. There's a whole an embarrassing amount. Hashtag Pamcore. Like it is a full aesthetic. It is back. I haven't seen that. People are doing like the thin penciled eyebrows, the lip liner, like the tousled bun on the top of the head, the bangs. Like is this part of like the bimbo core thing? It's that's a little happening? bit bimbo core. It's a little bit Barbie core, and Pam is back. But I have to tell you this other story actually, which is that when I was with her at her home in Canada. We were sitting in her kitchen. We were baking Christmas cookies. Oh, that sounds nice. It's like a celebrity Hallmark movie. <laughs> <laughs> totally. And actually, she's an amazing cook. But, you know, so I'm recording all of this, obviously, because I was doing this profile of her. And so we're hanging out in the kitchen. Her assistant, Jonathan, was near us. He's sort of helping out. And I pull out my phone to show her this TikTok filter that lets you basically put 90s Pam onto your 2023 human, not Pam, face. And so Pam is not on social media, so she'd never seen this. And she literally screamed. Oh, that's so funny! <laughs> what the fuck? That's insane. You gotta do this <laughs> What the hell? I mean, my kids know about this. This is insane. This is like the extent of my... That's hysterical. That's such a sweet and funny moment. Like... It's really lovely to hear her finally getting to enjoy some of this attention and actually be able to laugh at all the absurdity of it. Yeah, I mean, I was actually thinking about that. It kind of wraps up the idea for this episode perfectly. Like, there are certainly parts of Pamela Anderson's life in retrospect that she wants to stay in the past. Like, she doesn't want to be that cartoonish 90s version of herself. And she has said that. But at least now she's getting to decide, yeah. you know, what she wants to embrace and what she wants to leave behind. 
And in some ways, this suit actually is a happy memory for her. Here's what she said when I asked her about it recently. It just represents a time in my history. Um, one of my favorite times, just to be so carefree on the beach, working when my sons were just born, putting on that red swimsuit just a couple months after I gave birth. You know, I still had to get back in the suit. I don't know, it made me feel, makes me feel happy to think about it. It was really a, a beautiful time in my life. That really does feel like a perfect place to end it. Yeah, it really does. So I guess that's our show for this week. See you next week. This is In Retrospect. Thanks for listening. Is there a cultural moment you can't stop thinking about and want us to explore in a future episode? Email us at inretropod at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at inretropod. If you love this podcast, please rate and review us on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen. If you hate it, you can post nasty comments on our Instagram, which we may or may not delete. You can also find us on Instagram at Jessica Bennett and at Susie B NYC. Also check out Jessica's books, Feminist Fight Club and This Is 18. In Retrospect is a production of iHeart Podcasts and The Meteor. Lauren Hansen is our supervising producer. Derek Clements is our engineer and sound designer. Sharon Atiyah is our researcher and associate producer. Our executive producer from The Meteor is Cindy Levy. Our executive producers from iHeart are Anna Stumpf and Katrina Norbell. Our artwork is from Pentagram. Additional editing help from Mary Dew and Mike Coscarelli. Sound correction and mastering by Amanda Rose Smith. We are your hosts, Susie Banacarum and Jessica Bennett. We're also executive producers. For even more, check out inretropod.com. See you next week. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here and this season takes it to a whole new level old school legends modern power players and ex-lovers are all competing in cape town south africa for the prize of three hundred thousand dollars and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast listen to mtv's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts